0: It's good to see everybody on a good fall day in Minnesota. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together, to gather together under your means of grace and to learn more about you and your word. We do pray, Lord, as we look at the perseverance of the saints and the eternal security that we have. We pray, Lord, that this would be settled in our hearts so that we may live godly lives, so that we would live lives of boldness for your gospel, for your glory, for your name, We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, dear ones, we're going to be here at the very end of our TULIP, our acronym that we've been using, because it was, in fact, the acrostic that the Calvinists used against the remonstrants. Now, remember, when it came to this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this has to do with eternal security. And initially, in the 1600s, when the remonstrants, these were the followers of Jacob Arminius... When they had reacted against Calvinism, they were uncommitted, or non-committal, you might say, regarding this doctrine. In other words, they claimed that more research was needed to determine whether or not a person was eternally secure once they were saved. Well, I think that was a cop-out. I think the Bible is very clear that a person is eternally secure. But in my opinion, I think this is perhaps one of the most important doctrines for every Christian to be aware of. Why? Because eternal salvation is something that we all wonder about. We all wonder about whether or not we really are still within the fold. And so this is perhaps the most practical doctrine of TULIP for most believers. Now let me just talk about the perseverance of the saints and why I like that phrase. Let's talk about what the Arminians believe. Now I'm talking about the Arminians today. Again, the initial remonstrance, they were noncommittal. They said, we don't know if a person can lose their salvation or not. Well, since then, the Arminian movement, by and large, has held to the position that believers can lose their salvation. That because human beings have something to do with their salvation, they also can have something to do with the loss of their salvation. So it does follow logically. After all, if salvation is only of God, well, then obviously you can't be lost. Why? Because he's the one who's perfect and keeps you. But the Armenians believe that human beings are partly responsible for salvation and can walk away from their salvation. Now, there's a view out there in what I call pop evangelicalism that says, once saved, always saved. Okay, now, this is a term that I've used even myself years ago, but the reason I want to highlight this is, this is true, once you're saved, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are eternally secure. However, I don't like to use that phraseology because what we learn from the Bible is that when a person is truly saved, they live like it. They persevere in the faith and God keeps them there. So, too many times, because of the seeker sensitive movement that Bob has written a lot about, you'll see people come to a false understanding of the gospel or even a false profession of the gospel. Yes, they profess, but they don't really possess salvation. And they live like the devil for years and years, and yet because they made a commitment, you know, 32 years earlier, well, once saved, always saved. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, I think, very much as the Reformed tradition has it, that believers are enabled by God to persevere in the faith unto eternal life. So it's not as if, You become a believer in Jesus Christ, live like the devil for 40 years, but at the end, you're going to be saved anyway. No, the true believer is one who perseveres in the faith and godly deeds and actions follow their life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. Remember in 1 John, Bob taught us very well in that book, if we say, we as believers say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No, we do fall and stumble, but God is merciful and gracious and the difference between believers and unbelievers, I like to say, is the difference between sin bothering you and sin not bothering you. See, for the unregenerate and those who perish, when they're called in the carpet because of sin, it doesn't bother them. But when you as a believer sin, it bothers you. It bothers you so much that it leads you to repentance. And that's the grace of God working in your life. So what I want to do is lay out the biblical evidence for the perseverance of the saints, for this important doctrine. And I want to begin in John chapter 10. This is a passage we'd looked at earlier in our studies. But I want to return to it. Please turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 10, 25 through 26. We'll begin there. So I show you a little context for the verses I'll be putting up. Again, John chapter 10, verses 25 through 26. Notice here, Jesus talking to his Israelite companions here, this fellow countryman. And it says he answered them. This is John 10, 25 through 26. He says, I told you and you do not believe the words that I do in my father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, I'm really interested there in that last clause. Notice the reason they don't believe It says, because you are not of my sheep. The because term that you see there in the Greek is hati. And hati just just simply indicates a reason. It's a causal clause. Okay, so this is showing you the cause. Why don't they believe? Well, because they're not of Jesus' sheep. Now, Jesus could have said, well, you don't believe because none of you are smart enough or none of you are good enough or none of you want to. But notice the reason Jesus gives for their unbelief is they don't belong to him. This, again, ties into the doctrine of election because right after this, Jesus is going to say, his sheep hear his voice. So the reason some don't believe is because they were never chosen to be of his fold. So right away, that's Jesus' answer. That's not Eric Dalma or Bob DeWay or anyone else. That's Jesus saying that. Now, listen to what he goes on to say, John 10, 27 through twenty nine. Now he's talking about the elect. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to, able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, dear ones, I want to unpack this passage. There's a lot of depth to this. So let's begin with this term here. I want to point to it. Notice Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Now, the term for hear there, akuo, you get the term acoustics from that, is a term that simply means more than just hearing sound waves go through your ear. It means to hear with faith. Okay, so, for example, remember the famous Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's a command to the Israelites, not just to hear the words, but to believe. Okay? So hearing here is synonymous with hearing with faith. So Jesus saying his sheep hear and they believe his words, his voice, all right? Now, also notice he says, "And I know them." Now, I want to tie this into something. Remember we were talking about foreknowledge. Remember back in Romans 8:29, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And remember, the Arminians, what do they do with that? They say, aha! This idea of foreknowledge is the idea that God looks down the corridor of time and he sees in his knowledge who will choose him, and on that basis, God chooses them. But we said, no, foreknowledge has to do with a foreloving, that God had an intimate relationship, an intimate love for his elect, and we proved that well, here, Jesus is talking about knowing his sheep. And that's that intimacy that we had talked about back in our discussions then. Jesus knows his sheep in a different way than he knows those outside of the flock. Yes, Bob.
1: On this hearing, do you think this has any implications regarding the internal and external call. Yeah. Um the reason I'm a-, a couple reasons I'm asking. Number one just biblically in John. Yeah. There are many times where Jesus made a public call. Yeah. You know, and uh everybody heard it. Yeah. But who heard his voice right in in a in a saving way would be different category than everybody just heard him saying I'm the bread of life or, you know, anything like that. That's
0: well said, yeah.
1: Okay, so there is an implication regarding the external call, which everybody hears, yep. and the internal call. And the second one is in some of my critical issues commentary disputes with people that find us on the internet. Yeah. They use this for fight for getting special guidance.
0: Oh. Like mystical knowledge. Yeah. Okay. They
1: use this verse. Wow. So I'm his sheep, so... Jesus is telling me, go here, don't go there, do this, buy this stock, not that one. I don't know what they're hearing. But they take it out of the context of salvation Yes, and put it into the context of personal guidance.
0: Right, right. That's well said. Bob, I think he's he's exactly right. I think the hearing here, remember we had two different types of calling. There's the universal call, as Bob was talking about, the, um, the external call sometimes is referred to. They're the same thing. That's where the gospel goes out to all people. But it takes the internal or effectual calling for people to believe. That's the type of hearing Jesus is referring to. So again, it's not just hearing sounds or hearing, yeah, I heard what he said. It's believing. Let me give you some evidence of the distinction. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah once. I'll show you where Isaiah was actually commissioned to preach. This is in Isaiah chapter 6. I didn't plan on reading this, so let me try to find it here. Isaiah 6. This is actually cited by Jesus. Isaiah 6. Sorry, I'm trying to turn my... You know, my, It's about the judgment of a
1: Exactly. I think I have an application of that sometimes coming up here.
0: Yeah, listen, listen to this. Um, This is Isaiah. And I'm sorry, Eric, I'll be right there. Or do you want to say something before we read Isaiah? Well, yeah,
2: yeah. I just wanted to emphasize what Bob just said, too, because I was talking to some people, oh, it was about in the last year. Yeah. And that exact text, you know, uh, uh, my sheep hear my voice. And these were people who, you know, God talks to them. And and I, it's, it's the context. that I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's hard when you're talking to people and then they bring out these things. Yes. You know, you're kind of taken aback. But it's the context here. He's talking about the effectual call. Exactly. He's not talking about personal well words said. from God. So Amen. this is worth us... All of us making note of that, I think. That's all I wanted to say.
0: Amen. And just for the record, this is something Bob and I have stood against time and time again. The Bible never teaches mystical experiences, ever. It's always objective. How do we know the words of Christ now and hear them? It's through the word of God. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how do we have the word of Christ? It's through the scriptures. So you're exactly right. The Bible never calls us to mysticism. But let's tie this back into the effectual calling. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 6. Listen to this commission of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 6, 8. You know, I'm really getting (laughs) farsighted. I should really get some cheaters, but I I think I can read it here.
1: They've got the wrong glasses.
0: I know. I should just get them. I got sunglasses. (laughs) Yeah. Here it says... um, this is Isaiah. This is Isaiah 6 8. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Now listen to this commissioning. This isn't exactly the seeker sensitive commissioning here. The Lord says to him, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Stop there a moment. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. That's the difference between the universal call. Everyone can hear the words, but it takes the effectual call to understand. Keep reading. He says, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He keeps going. He says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. This would be the effectual calling and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wow, yeah, Bob. Wow.
1: Every time I hear that, I, I think about the first time I met you, Eric. Yeah. It was right, remember where you go into the Bethel Seminary? This passage is This there. passage is on their cornerstone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Out of context. Out of context. <laughs> so the first time I ever met Eric, he was asking me to go talk to the provost who was bringing in this yeah. Laurent Schultz, who now is an atheist. Right. He was teaching heresy. And... <laughs> This verse is sitting there. Yeah. But they don't read the part about until they're hardened. Yes. And the hardening had already happened by the time but, Eric and I were there to talk to him.
0: Yeah, how ironic, Bobby. Go to a seminary and in their very brick and mortar. Is the passage out of context? So here you're going to seminary to learn how to read the Bible in context and understand it, and they take that <laughs> passage out of context and put it in their brick and mortar. So, yeah, yeah very ironic. So, the, the only reason I wanted to I- cite Isaiah 6 is you can hear the difference between hearing and believing. There's a lot of people who hear, but they don't believe. Jesus is using the term hearing with the idea of believing. Is that
1: what His... Jesus
0: Exactly, Rich. Yeah, very good. Say that again. He it, he it exactly right. Is that
2: why Jesus taught in parables?
0: That's right. So the teaching in parables, there's, it's, it's really a two-four, Rich. In one sense, it's a form of mercy. But it's a form of mercy in that if Jesus just came out directly and said, look, I'm the Messiah, either repent, trust in me, or you're all going to perish... They'd want to kill him right away. In fact, they tried to do that at the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He told them very plainly. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. So the more plainly he told them, the more they want to kill him. So he started to teach in parables. And it's a form of hardening because they're so hardened in their heart, morally opposed to the gospel, that if he told them plainly, they would reject him immediately. But it's also merciful because, again... He's telling them in a way where it can work on them. But this is why he tells the disciples. They ask him, why do you tell us plainly, but you tell them everything in parables? He says, because to you it's been given. Remember, didomi, the term in Greek, yeah, granted, granted. granted, the knowledge of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given or granted. So, And that's one of the things that Bob took on Rick Warren about. Rick Warren tried to claim that every preacher should be learned to be a good storyteller, because after all, Jesus taught in parables... And the reason he did so is that everyone could understand it. That's not the reason Jesus gave. <laughs> it's so funny. So Bob is to point out this thing to Rick Warren in, in, in his rebuttal of his book. And that was the uh, purpose-driven... The
1: book I wrote about, the, Yeah, it. about purpose-driven. I I just did Acts of Jesus.
0: Yeah, book. right, yeah. So very, very good. So, okay, I'm sorry. I will keep moving on here. But notice also, he says, I give to them eternal life. Okay, now this eternal life... I like to use the term everlasting, okay? The term aeonios literally means unto the ages, without end, okay? But why do I like to use the term everlasting? Well, technically, and this is just an English issue, when we use the eternal, what we really mean is something without beginning and without end, okay? And as Bob has pointed out numerous times, only God is the one who's eternal, non-contingent being, okay? So what we really have is everlasting life. The moment you believe, it will never end, Your life will go on forever and ever from that point on. Okay, so think about it right there. If Jesus gives them everlasting life, at that moment, they have it. And if, therefore, they would perish at any moment, well, that's something less than everlasting, isn't it? So right there, the fact that he promises everlasting life is a rebuttal to the fact that you can lose your salvation. If you have everlasting life at one moment but then at some point in the future you don't have it, it wasn't everlasting. I hate to point out the obvious. And Jesus, therefore, is a liar. But he's promising everlasting life. And notice he says in the blue, this is the word, the phrase that I want you to get in your mind. They will never perish. Now, I love this phrase. This is one of the phrases I learned when I was studying Greek. In the Greek language, there are different moods. Okay, now what's a mood? Well, there's an indicative mood, a subjunctive mood, An optative mood. Let me explain the difference. An indicative mood simply is the mood where it's declaring reality. Um, You drove your car to the store. That's just the way it was. It's not wishing that you drove your car to the store, it's just indicating a fact. That's the indicative mood, indicating reality. The subjunctive mood, though, is used in the Greek to refer to sometimes the desire. When God wishes that people would do this or that, sometimes the subjunctive mood is used, but sometimes it's used with possibility, that something is possible, it possibly could happen. Now, what's interesting here is here we have a negation, not of an indicative mood, but of the subjunctive mood. So what he's actually saying here is not that they will never perish, but there's not even a possibility of perishing. He's negating even the possibility of perishing. It is the strongest way, the most emphatic way in the Greek language to deny the possibility of something, the negation of the subjunctive mood. He is saying there's not even a possibility of any future perishing for his elect. Wow. Jesus the Lord of glory, the creator of all things made that promise. So, When an Arminian says, "Eh, well, I'm not sure, we're going to have to look into this to see whether or not you could lose your salvation, do you see how bad that is? I don't think it's taking the exegesis of John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, very seriously. All right. So notice he goes on also to say that no one will snatch them out of his hand. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So you and I are secure, not because of who we are, but because we're in the son and in the Father's hand. Um, Diane, you often sign emails I love it, in his grip. She does that because that's the theology of John chapter 10. I, I know that about you, and I, just, I hope I don't mean to embarrass you, but that, that's exactly right. We're held in his grip. Isn't that wonderful? That it's not you and I hanging on. Do you remember when you were in grade school and you had to do those pull-up tests? And when you're really little, you can't even do a pull-up yet, so they just measure how long you can hold on. <laughs> a lot of people think of salvation that way. I just got to hold on. You're not holding on to anything. He's holding on to you. Mm-hmm. That's what this text is describing. Yes, Jen. On, I'm sorry, Carly's bringing it. Uh, the.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Thanks, Carly. Yeah.
3: I was just going to make a comment that at a, a church that Bill and I previously attended, um, someone brought that verse up, and the pastor <laughs> refuted it by saying, no, um, you, they could jump. <laughs> they could jump oh. out of his hand. <laughs> oh, <they could> jump. <laughs>
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, that is not good. That is uh, reading into the text something that is not there. Jen, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah, Bob. Well,
1: I recently got an email <laughs> from somebody excoriating me <coughs> for teaching what he derisively called Calvinism, and he was interested in people losing their salvation. I'm not saying he wanted them to, yeah. but he felt like he had to be dangled over to pit. Endlessly, or you're never going to be a good Christian. Yeah. But it's like that. Yeah, And I said what you said here. I said to him, okay, you answer me, what sort of eternal life is temporary?
0: Exactly.
1: Isn't that a contradiction of terms?
0: It's an oxymoron. And then I
1: cited this. Yeah. I give to them eternal life. Now, the in the Greek, it basically says... Into the ages or yes. of the ages. Right, right. Okay, so it begins, but it goes on into the ages. That's right. And then it took a long time, and he came back with some kind of, well, evasion. But you can't have temporary eternal life. That's that's like a square circle.
0: Exactly. Well said. It's a contradiction. Well said, Bob. Yeah, Brian.
2: We've heard stories, Bob has told us, like of uh, uh, professors of his that uh, taught at seminary for years, and yeah. then later they just turned away from God, and now they're living the big life and making lots of cash and so on and so forth. But we know of lots of stories like that, but it's the Bible that says that uh, the people who were disciples of Jesus's, later on, they turned and walked away, and they were never truly of them. Exactly. Exactly. I never knew you.
0: Amen. Well said. And we'll talk about that category because you're exactly right. There are those who even have a profession but they never had possession. And Jesus actually describes in the parable of the soils, and by the way, he unpacks the parable so you know the meaning of it. He'll explain, yes, there are those who seem to be believers, but they never really were. They never had genuine faith. And he describes that. So that is a category that Jesus warns us about and, and lets us know that exists. So you're exactly right. And we'll be coming to those passages to deal with that issue. But let me go back to something Jen mentioned. You had mentioned that that pastor said that, well, you can jump out of the hand. Uh-huh. Let me just point to a passage that really I've used to refute that idea. When I was an airline pilot, I would, there was a lot of opportunity to witness. And I would deal with people who had kind of the Armenian uh, doctrine in their mind. And they would always say, well, yeah, I can choose to walk away. So this is the passage I always think of is in Romans 8, where uh, this is Romans eight twenty or excuse me eight thirty nine, I say it's failing me here. This is where Paul says this. He says neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans eight thirty nine. So nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. All right. So are you part of creation? Yes. And if you're part of creation, you can't separate yourself from the love of Christ. That, to me, is a great rebuttal to that. Well, I can choose to walk away. Yeah, Scott. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all
1: right.
0: Very good. Yeah, that's good. But thanks, Jen, for bringing that up. Very good. So again, no one, oh, by the way, the, when you notice the term when he says no one can snatch them out of the, my hand, no one can snatch them out of the fire. The term snatch there is the term harpazo. That's the same term that's used for the rapture. Okay, so it shows you, I'm just pointing that out because it shows you that in 1 Thessalonians 4, what's being depicted as a snatching away of believers. Well, here Jesus is saying that ultimately no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. You really are eternally secure. Okay, now let me come to another text in John 17 that I like to call the Lord's Prayer. Now, we often think of the Lord's Prayer as our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We think of that one. But I like to say that that's his model prayer because that's when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. But here in John 17, Jesus is interceding as our great high priest prior to his resurrection and ascension on our behalf. So here he's functioning as a priest. He's interceding for us. And listen to one of his prayers that he gives. John 17, 14 through 15, he's praying to the Father. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. "'because they are not of the world, "'even as I am not of the world. "'I do not ask you to take them out of the world, "'but to keep them from the evil one.'" Now, notice what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming we do not belong to the world. Now, the term world there, Bob has pointed out, the world is used three different ways. Sometimes it's used as the arena of human affairs. Sometimes it's used as simply the creation itself, the globe, the earth, the sphere of the earth. But other times it's used for humanity and rebelling against God. And that's certainly, I think, how it's used here. So the point is, we are not of the humanity and rebelling against God. We are not of the world. We're not of those who don't believe. So he's, he's taken us out of the world, and uh, we're, we're not of the world. But now notice his, his request. He says, keep them from the evil one. He does, doesn't want us to be removed per se, well, we are to be kept from the grips of the evil one. Now, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, is this a prayer request that the Father will answer? Well, I think it is. And I think when the Son of God, God himself prays on our behalf and says, keep them from the evil one, I think we have to say, this is something certainly the Father is going to honor. Now, I want you to remember what conversion is. Conversion. Think about these two different spheres. So when you think of world, think about that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In fact, could somebody read John five eighteen? Would somebody mind reading that? John five eighteen. Uh, Rich has got it. Thank you. John, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rich. I led you astray. First uh, John five eighteen is what I meant. We'll wait for you. 1 John five
2: 18. First John five eighteen. In fact,
0: read uh,
2: 18 through 19. All right. Boy, you're making me work today.
0: <laughs> That's right.
2: We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God... And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one.
0: Notice that last clause. The whole world lies under the sway, the power of the evil one. Oops, I'm sorry, I got rid of my pointer. Does everyone look on the screen here? That's Satan's domain. So the whole whole world lies in the power and the domain of Satan. But what happens at conversion is that you're turning from Satan's domain and you're being delivered to Christ's domain. Uh, one of the articles that Bob wrote in Clo- was due to, or based on Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Let me read that to you. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice what Colossians 1, 13 through 14 is saying, that we left this domain and we entered Christ's domain. We left Satan's domain, we entered Christ's domain, and now we see in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, that we will be preserved from the realm of the evil one. In other words, Christianity is not this. It's not that you start here in conversion, and then you go back, and then you repent and you go back. It's not a tennis match. You watch a tennis match, and they go back and forth their heads. That's not Christianity. That's not true conversion. The evil one will never touch those who belong to Christ. Think about Peter. Peter denied Christ three times, and yet he never left this domain. In fact, Jesus, remember, he reinstated him three times. He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep was the answer, right? So it wasn't that when he had committed his sin, that all of a sudden he went back to Satan's domain. This idea of being kept from the evil one does not mean that you will never sin in this life. It means even though you sin, even though you falter, even though you fail, you are secure in the Son's domain. Because he paid on the cross his propitious death, the sins past, present, and future for you. There is no future sin that you will commit if you're a genuine believer that will separate you from the domain of Christ. Now, your sin, if you're truly a believer, will bother you, and you'll want to repent from it, and he will breed you, bring you to that repentance, and that's a sign of genuine faith, but it will not separate you from the domain of Christ. Now, what's very interesting is the term keep here is the verb te the preposition "ek." keep from the evil one. This has to do with preservation on the outside. Now, why do I bring that up? Because most of you were in here during the Revelation study, and I spent a lot of time on Revelation 3.10. Remember, Jesus gives the promise to the church in Philadelphia, because you've been faithful to keep, tereo is the verb, my word, I will keep you, te reo, from, ek the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. In other words, the same verb and preposition are used in John 3:10 as they are used in John 17:15. Okay, now why am I laboring that point? Because the verb tēraō means to keep or to guard, the preposition from simply means that from the outside of something. Its preservation on the outside That's the way it's used in Revelation 3.10. The people of God are going to be preserved on the outside of the tribulation period. Are you with me? Okay, so why is that important? Because the post-tribulationists say, no, we go through it, and God is going to preserve us through that time in order to be saved at the end of it. Well, that's not what the text is saying. That would mean that we have to be kept in Satan's domain to be taken out from the end of it. That's the idea of post-tribulation. Tribulationalism. What I'm showing you is Jesus and John are always consistent. Te reo ek means to be preserved on the outside. John seventeen 15, you're being preserved on the outside of Satan's domain. You're never going back. Revelation 3, 10, you're being preserved on the outside of the Tribulation period. You'll never enter into it.
1: Yes? If I, could, I want to uh, talk briefly about Interactions I have every week with people who contact me about demons. Yeah. Okay. Uh, While you have this up here, what confuses people is geography. Yeah. Okay. We're not talking about geography. In other words, you can't say, "Well, I'm in America, so I'm in a Christian place," but somebody else is in Iran. So they're in Satan's place. And so people are always thinking about geography. That's right. And I just had I just told somebody on an email, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yes. Okay. So we are living on the same terra firma. Okay. Yes. And the demonic realm is also here. And so this is whose spiritual authority you're under who you're living for, and that you have the Holy Spirit. Now, the emails will often say, well, I have this demon comes, and it gets in my mouth or it gets in my ear, or the demons are coming and going, and I'm looking for somebody to get the demon out. I've gotten thousands of those emails. the sort of one article I wrote years ago. And I've been for... All those years trying to get better at explaining. Because they see in the Bible well that yes. cast Jesus cast out the demon. Right. But then we have an acts where the sons of Skiva yeah, are beat up. Right. And, it, and then there's a parable about the seven worst, and I was talking about something else. Yeah. But that was popular demonology. Right. And I say no. The real issue is whose domain you're under. And once you're under Christ's domain it's not your business to know where the demons are or aren't. You can't see them. It's not your business to know details about demons. And the question is, to whom do you go when you have a problem? That's right. Okay. And so the most pertinent um, picture of that would be Second Corinthians 12. Exactly. Paul's uh, messenger from Satan. Yeah, Thor in the flesh. Yeah, he didn't... Look for an exorcist or do it on himself.
0: Yeah.
1: He went to God. Amen. Okay. So I, I tell everybody over and over and over like a redundancy, go to the throne of grace and ask God to take care of you. And if God decides the best way to take care of you is that you have to battle temptations or attacks, then that's the, that's what happened with Paul.
0: Exactly.
1: Okay. But, the, but if you go and talk to the demon, which is here, now here's, this has been helping lately, I've been using this one. Yeah. When you talk to the demon, assuming they're there, you're giving a signal to the demon that you think you're still in their domain. Yes. Oh, oh so you're still here, good. And then the manifestations start. Yeah. And then they think, well, see, now I need the exorcist. And they called me back. It didn't work. Well, now what are you going to do? Yeah. And so I tell every last one, you need to know right now whose domain you're in.
0: Exactly.
1: If you're in still the saints domain, I can't help you any other than through the gospel. Yeah. If you're in Christ, then you go to Christ. Yeah. I hope somebody hears this in Sunday school that yeah. hears the tape. Um, But they get confused because it sounds like geography in our mind.
0: Exactly. Well said, Bob. Yeah. Nature. No, very good. uh, Scott.
2: I've said before it's akin to a cosmic protection racket.
0: It is. Yeah, absolutely. Let let me explain what you mean by that. Um, You're exactly right. It's a protection racket. Let's take the book of Colossians. I just read you Colossians 1, 13 through 14, where Paul lays out this domain change. We went from Satan's domain to Christ's domain. What was happening at Colossi is you had Christians, just look on the screen for a moment. They went from Satan's domain at conversion, they went to Christ's domain. So they're here, but they act as if they're still here. Why? Because they're buying into the doctrines of demons that come from that realm. The doctrines of demons where Christ isn't sufficient. If you really want your son to get a good job or to have a bumper crop in the field, what you need is start to worship angels. And what it was, it was a protection racket that came from this realm. So the irony is you have Christians in this domain who are acting as if they're back in that domain. What people need is a domain change. You can cast out all the demons you want, but if you have not been converted, you remain in Satan's domain. You're still on the Titanic. You're just maneuvering the deck chairs around. But as soon as you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're in his domain and you can never go back. So now, like Bob is saying, go to the throne of grace because he uses even the demonic realm for your good. How do we know that? Romans eight twenty-eight: God causes all things to work out for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That means our illnesses. That means the demonic realm. Every single thing in the cosmos, God will use for your good. He will use whatever he needs for your good. He uses the demonic realm even for your good. So why go back and start trying to maneuver the demons around? That's just buying into their doctrines. No, you're here. Go to Christ. Go to God at the throne room of grace. Yeah, Uh, Rich. There
2: was a popular movie out a few years ago. Oh, sorry. (laughs) That's all right. There was a popular movie out a few years ago called Prayer Room, or was okay. it Prayer Warrior Room or something like that? Or is it War Room? And the lady was praying to Satan. I think she was saying, you have no control yeah. over me, get out of here, blah, blah, blah. So you're saying, don't do that.
0: That's bad. Yeah, let me show you some evidence of this, um, that that's very bad to interact with either Satan or the demonic realm. And this is very practical. How many times do you hear people, they say, you know, I'm going on a prayer walk, and they're walking around the block, and they say, I read, you know, I What do they always use? They always rebuke, bind. Yeah, they always use terminology. I bind you, Satan. I rebuke you. They're always maneuvering the spirits around. But turn your Bibles to Jude, the book of Jude. This is a rebuttal to that. What Bob has been showing us in his writings, CIC, for years and years is to say, look, we go to the throne of grace. God is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who uses demonic realm as he sees fit. So we have no jurisdiction nor right or authority to boss the angelic realm around, an angelic realm that we can't see, that we don't know what they're doing, that we don't know how God is using. We're completely blind about it. So listen to how, let's see, Jude, I think it's Jude, it's Jude 12. I'm sorry, it's actually uh, Jude 9. Remember, it's one chapter. Yeah. Now listen to this. There's going to be a a greater to lesser argument here. It says, But when Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, this debate here, this this text is about this archangel Michael disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. Now that that. Description there is from a extra biblical book, the book of um, isn't it uh, First Enoch? Isn't that the one I, I believe? Remember, the point is we know that as far as the scripture maybe it was the assumption of Moses. As far as the text of scripture goes, we know this part of that book is is correct. Okay, why? Because we have a biblical author who's affirming that that actually happened. But here's the significance of the story: the the biblical author here is affirming to us that there really was a dispute between Michael the archangel and Satan. But notice Michael the archangel. Now, who's Michael? He's an archangel. He would not dare take it upon himself to rebuke Satan, but he said, may the Lord do it. So here's the point. Michael the archangel knew it was above his authority to tell another one of the angelic beings, in this case, the head of the demon, Satan, what to do. Why? Because that's God's authority alone. So if the greater angel, archangel, Michael, he's greater than us, we're humans, who knew, he knew what was going on in that realm, we don't. If the greater archangel, greater than us, didn't boss another angel or demon around, how much less should you and I, mere mortals, do so you see, that's exactly what the false teachers do. That's called boundary crossing, taking upon yourself an authoritative role that God never, never ordained for you. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, Christy. Or Jen, I'm sorry, Jen.
1: Back corner. Back corner. Way
0: back there. And so as Carly's walking there, my whole point is just to back up what Bob is saying. Look, we go to the throne of grace. We don't have the authority to boss the demons or the angels around we just go to god and and ask him to intervene on our behalf yes jen
3: this verse just or these two verses confuse me a bit matthew 16 um 22 and 23, Peter took him, Jesus' aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And yeah. that always confused me because, you know, certainly Peter is in Christ's domain. How can... <laughs> You know, was Satan in him? I, yes, I don't understand that. Yeah, very good question.
0: That. Though that's very good, it's very relevant to this. So let me address that. So Peter's in Christ's domain. He confesses, that's at Caesarea Philippi. And remember, that's where Jesus asks, you know, who does men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter gives the great confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this is not revealed to you by flesh, but my Father in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to explain how he's going to have to suffer at the cross. And so this is the first time he's starting to reveal the way he's going to save his people is by being a suffering Messiah. Peter has in his mind an error. That is, the Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah reigns in glory. So he is forbidding Jesus, you know, may it never be, And his forbidding this idea that Jesus shouldn't go to the cross. Jesus is showing us the ultimate source from that is Satan. So even though Peter is squarely in his domain, this is a sinful thought. No different than the Colossians who were in this domain, but yet were buying into doctrines from Satan's domain. Peter is secure in Christ's domain, but he's adopting a doctrine that comes from Satan's domain. Does that make sense? So that doesn't mean he's lost, but Jesus is identifying that the idea that he should not suffer on behalf of the people it comes ultimately from Satan. Does that help, Jen? But in no way does that question Peter's salvation, security, any of that. Jesus simply identifying that's where the thought comes from. I, ho- I hope that helps. Yeah, very good. Very good question. I didn't even. That's a very good uh, thing to bring up in this context. So very, very good. Okay, so with that, what I just want you to see is that we're secure in the domain of Christ, and we're obviously never going to leave that. Now, let's go outside of John. Let's go to Peter. I'm going to show you that other apostles are saying the same thing. This is First Peter 1, 3 through 5. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Notice here you have a blessing of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living, hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God and through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, one thing I just want to point out, notice here we are saved because God caused us to what? To be born again. Notice this isn't something that comes from humanity. This is something that comes from God, isn't it? That's salvation. But notice where is our inheritance? Our inheritance in heaven is something that's reserved for us. Now, notice that term in blue, the term reserved. The term reserved there is a passive participle of te reo. Do you remember back in John 17, 15, Jesus says, keep them from the evil one? And I said the keep there is the verb te re'o. Well, here you have that same verb being used again reserved in heaven or kept in heaven, or literally you could render it guarded in heaven. Now, because it's a passive form, it implies an outside agent. So, who is the outside agent who is reserving this for you, your reservation in heaven? Or again, you could say keeping it or protecting it, guarding it. I like the term guarding. If I were to do my own translation here, I'd say guarded in heaven for you. That's how I'd render it. Well, the outside agent is God. Now, I know there's a lot of different home security systems out there, and there's a lot of different security agencies who will patrol different businesses. But I tell you, there's not a greater guard dog than the Holy One of Israel. Your inheritance in heaven is guarded by him. I don't think anyone's going to be able to thwart that security system. No one's going to be able to get around that one. It's reserved in heaven. And by the way, that shows us then you and I haven't been there. We haven't been to heaven, we haven't had our resurrected bodies, but it's positional. The promises are positional, like Bob is saying, it's not geographical yet. It will be geographical one day. Christ is coming back to bring a kingdom to the Earth. Remember Revelation 5:10: They shall reign upon what? The Earth? Yes, not They're not going to be strumming a harp on the cloud. He doesn't say that. We're going to be reigning upon the Earth for a thousand years. And then geographically, the new heavens, the new Earth and New Jerusalem come, and the New Jerusalem comes down, and you and your resurrected body are going to be to, able to walk amongst God 's new creation. And so it'll be geographical. But now, it's a reservation. Just like when you make a reservation at a restaurant, even though you're not there, it's secure. Even though sometimes restaurants goof it up. (laughs) But God is infallible. He won't goof up your reservation in heaven. Notice verse 5 in the underlines. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now, very important. Notice it says we're protected by the power of God. So are we protecting ourselves? No, we're being protected by the power of God, but notice he says it's also through faith. Bob and I will often say God is completely sovereign in salvation, but he uses means. So, for example, um, if Eric is out preaching the gospel and his evangelism, God is saving, but he's using the preaching of Eric to do it. In the same way, we're protected through the power of God, but it's not because you and I are inactive. But yes, you and I really are going to have faith. It's simply the fact that God keeps us in the faith. So again, why is that important? Because you can't say of someone who made a prayer at a Billy Graham meeting, for example, I'm, just, I'm not poo-pooing Billy Graham meetings, by the way, I'm just saying, I'm giving an example. Let's say someone comes forward at a Billy Graham evangelistic meeting, but for 40 years after that, they live for the devil, they don't want anything to do with the doctrines of Christ, And at the end of it all, someone at a funeral says, well, they did come forward at the Billy Graham crusade. Well, yeah, but they never had faith. That's the importance of the perseverance of the faith. God in his power keeps you through faith. He will keep you in the faith. And this faith will produce good works. When you sin, and you will, it'll bother you, and you'll want to repent and turn from it this is why, remember in Ephesians 2, 8-9 it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But right away in verse 10 it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, in that sphere for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you and I are demonstrating that we really belong to Christ through our good works they don't save us But our faith is demonstrated through what we do. So, yes, we're saved completely by the power of God who keeps his elect believing until they either go home to be with the Lord because of natural death or he comes back for them. One of the two. But he is the one who's going to keep us in the faith. And that's why I like the term that the reformers had, perseverance of the faith. Protected by the power of God through faith. Both are exceedingly important. So don't ever claim that if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, somehow you're being protected by the power of God. You may have had a false conversion. No, if, you've been, if you're being protected by the power of God, you're one who will not depart from the doctrines of Christ, at least permanently. Okay, now let me show you another passage. We've used this numerous times. Let me do it again just because it'll, I think, give us a fresh... Understanding of just how secure we are. Romans 8.30, Paul said, and these whom he predestined, talking about the elect, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this numerous times that all the verbs here with the ed ending, predestined, called, justified, glorified, they're aorist active indicatives. Now typically the aorist tense has to do with something that occurred in the past. So what I would say, these are more than likely proleptic eras. In other words, we have been predestined. We're certainly called justified, but what about glorified? You and I haven't experienced that yet. But so certain is it that it can be spoken of as if it's already happened. Another way of looking at this text is, in God's eyes, it's already done. If you've been predestined, you've also been glorified. Well, the only way that's possible is if you're eternally secure. The Arminians can maintain that you can be predestined and one day not be glorified. That's what they teach. But does that follow from the logic of the text? No. In God's eyes, if you've been predestined, you've also been called the effectual calling. You've also been justified. Think about that. Justified, declared righteous. Why? Because Christ paid your debt. You're clothed in his righteousness. So if he paid your debt, why are you going to have to pay for it? See, that's why you're glorified. See, because you're justified, you have to be glorified. He paid your debt. Because at some point in the future, you're going to say, well, he did pay my debt, but now he sort of unpaid it. How does that work? You see, when the Armenians claim that people can lose their salvation, it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow from the biblical text. And to me, this is one of the core doctrines that Calvin had right. So when people ask us, are you a Calvinist, there's a lot of things that I have problems with, as Bob and I have shown earlier in our presentation. But here, when it comes to the perseverance of the saints, the fact that a believer can rest in secure security forevermore, the reformer was absolutely right. Yeah, Peter.
2: When you get referred to as a Calvinist, wouldn't your response say, no, I'm a biblical Christian?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great response. Like I mentioned, Peter, when I began all of this weeks and weeks and weeks ago, typically when people ask you, are you a Calvinist? What they're really asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Okay, it's, it's a shorthand version of that, yeah. So if someone says to you, you're traveling somewhere, and they say, are you an American? You say, yeah, I'm an American, but that doesn't mean that I believe in abortion that America commits or so many other things that America does. You know, I'm, I'm, By the way, I'm, I'm a proud American. I love John Wayne apple pie and Chevrolet baseball, the whole nine yards. My whole point in saying it is simply to say that doesn't mean I buy into everything that America does. In the same way, when people ask me, are you a Calvinist, it doesn't mean I buy into everything. And so that's why we wanted to put this out there. But the big issue, I think, when it comes to the doctrine of election, that's what usually people are asking. If you're a Calvinist, you're one who believes that God sovereignly saves and he alone chooses. That's really typically what they're asking about. So, Yeah, exactly right. Well, um, one of the issues, too, that Bob and I had was there was a book that we read from a man named Bob Kirkland. And what's so sad about it is it went out to a lot of our discernment ministries. And this book took on Calvin precisely in the area where Calvin was right in the doctrine of election. And what was so sad, Peter, was that in the areas where Calvin was wrong, they said nothing. So precisely where Calvin was correct biblically, that's where they had all their problems, that salvation is only of God, that we're eternally secure, all those things. And by the way, notice the text that I have on the screen, Romans 830, excuse me, not Romans 830, Romans 9. How many know Romans 9 has a little bit to do with the doctrine of election? It's the one of the core texts. It's, it's the core text in the Bible. The guy didn't even deal with the text. How can you discuss the doctrine of election and criticize Calvin over it and not even deal with the core text on election, Romans chapter 9? So very bad, and that's what was going out to our discernment ministries and being promulgated by them. Let me leave you with this text. I'm going to show you another one from Paul, and we'll close in prayer. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. By the way, what good work is Paul referring to? It's salvation. Remember in John 6, 29, the Jews want to do a good work. They want to do a work of God. Jesus says to them, this is the work that you should do, the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. That's certainly also what Paul's referring to here. The good work that God began was the work of salvation. He will be faithful to perfect it. The term perfect there, epitaleo, How many in here have ever heard of the teleological argument? I mention that all the time. Teleolos, it's the idea of goal or design. The idea is because there's design in the universe, there must be a designer. It didn't just happen by chance. If you went on a beach and you saw a message in the beach, drink Coca-Cola.
1: I think that's the cosmological argument. They're, they're both, yeah, both. The teleological would be end or purpose, yep. but the design is for a purpose, so they kind of blend.
0: Exactly, they blend together. So think of it, if you're on the beach and you see a message that says drink Coca-Cola, you would, say, would you ever say, wow, look at what that happened by chance? <laughs> the waves came aboard. Well, how much more complex is the writing in your DNA, for example. Your DNA is far more complex, and so therefore it presupposes design, and therefore it presupposes a designer. So that's the idea of teleos, the idea of design or goal. So the idea here is that the one who began your work of salvation is going to bring it to its goal or design. He designed you to be saved, that's the goal of it, and he's going to bring that about. So how can people say that Christians aren't secure? Brothers and sisters, don't believe it. The moment you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you had everlasting life, and you will forever have that everlasting life. It will never be taken from you. It will never be something that f- fades or is fleeting. You have that to look forward to. All right, let's let's close our closer by bowing your heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that your word is clear, that it's not ambiguous as to whether or not we have eternal security. We thank you, Lord, that we don't need a council or people to vote on this, that your word has told us that you keep us in your hand. I do pray, Lord, that you would put this in the hearts of my dear brothers and sisters, that you'd put it within us so that we may persevere through the dark days of life, knowing that you have a secure held by your grip. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.